In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. The lead guitarist you're listening to is one of the biggest celebrities of my generation. This is him again, maybe a little bit easier to recognize here. You cannot be serious! That ball was on the line! John McEnroe's performances on the tennis court came as a shock to professional sports. Here was an athlete with a playing style as unpredictable and surprising as his volcanic interactions with linesmen and umpires. That's it? It's only a game? Today, his father says John, quote, has gotten mellower, but he's not mellow, unquote. John still competes, doubles mostly, with his brother Patrick. He is also the father of six, an avid art collector and a television commentator. In 2010, he founded the John McEnroe Tennis Academy on Randall's Island in New York City. About 20 years ago, John McEnroe took a serious interest in playing music. I mean, I was a music lover. I didn't play it till I was 20. So I was an air guitarist in high school. And then when I started traveling on the tennis tour, I realized that I had a lot of downtime. And I started to see some of these great musicians. I remember seeing Buddy Guy in Chicago. And he played, and it was so magnificent that I was like, what am I wasting my time? So I went back to my hotel, smashed the guitar. <laughs> no. $400 guitar. It wasn't too bad at the time. You could have donated that guitar to charity, you know. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it yet. I wasn't that bad yet. I did love music, and I mean, athletes, oftentimes when we're practicing, we play to music, and there's definitely a, an energy boost that it gives you when things are going badly, and you don't feel like doing it, but... The playing part of it actually was extremely frustrating because I'm sort of a natural in tennis, but I never was in guitar playing. My wife, Patty Smythe, says that uh, her quote from my guitar playing is that I wrestle it into submission. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not exactly relaxed. I don't breathe particularly well. It looks like I'm forcing it. So even though at one stage, probably when I stopped playing on the main tour in tennis, I started shifting towards playing a lot of music and actually had an actual band where I was possibly deluding myself into thinking that maybe I'd actually do this. You're going to make it. It became apparent pretty quickly because I wanted to be the Carlos Santana of my group. I didn't want to be the singer, but I couldn't find a singer. So I ended up singing myself because I couldn't get anyone else to sing. How would you rate your singing? I would rate it a C- minus to D+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't go out, out of key, but I would just sing abysmally. And 
the first tour I ever did, I went to Italy, and we did like a 12-city, two-week tour. We played 12 gigs in 14 days. And if I remembered the words to a song and was breathing <laughs> at the end of a song, I considered it successful. I mean, forget the booze I was hearing about how bad my voice was. But I, I did a, I did a movie, and they wanted us to sing Rock of Ages. We did the Broadway musical oh, yeah, with Tom Cruise Absolutely. and everybody. And when I get in the room and they say, yeah, we're going to auto-tune it. We're going to auto-tune it. And I'm like, okay. It was terrible. I mean, I'm, I'm not a good singer. Well, the, I, have, I have it in my heart. In my soul, I'm a singer. You know, funnily enough, because of I, I, when I was doing this initially, I was just started my relationship with Patty Smythe, who I've now been with 20 years. But at the time, it was just starting. So after first saying, look, I mean, here would be the perfect singer. I was like, this is perfect. And she was like, are you crazy? I'm not singing with your band. <laughs> exactly. But because I knew her, I knew like her guitar player started playing with me and I was getting some pretty good musicians to play with me. At one stage, Eddie Kramer, who was the engineer for Hendrix, came on as a producer. So I'm thinking, all right, this guy, I mean, he's done all these incredible Hendrix tunes. And look what they did with the recordings, et cetera. I was thinking the same thing you just said about the auto-tune. I was like, wait, listen, how come my voice sounds like this? Okay, oh, this is the best I got, so you got to do something. Yeah. And they weren't doing it, which really frustrated me. I actually and wanted why? that. I don't know why. I, I, is this guy an engineer? Or engineer is he a therapist? Oh, well, you, like, know, what, you I want think, you to face yeah. something? Like, I need you to face it. <laughs> it was painful. What kind of music did you crave when you were a kid? Uh, rock and roll. Yeah. What, yeah. what band? Zeppelin was my favorite yeah, band exactly. growing up. Right. Sabbath. You know, I mean, I was into sort of pretty heavy rock and roll. Sure. But my first concert. Who? Uh, the Who. Stones. Was, yeah, exactly. All that. You know, who was better, the Stones or the the Beatles? Uh, no comparison, I think. I was more of a Stones guy, though I do love the Beatles. I mean, now I've grown to appreciate just even attempting to write songs. I realize how amazing... Both of them were at that particular time. When I, me growing up, actually, were well, these the, incredible bands. Well, to me, the Beatles were like if there was a girl involved, you know, when, when, you know but when the Stones were, the, yeah. the Stones were the soundtrack of all my partying. Although the Beatles were pretty strong in that also. I mean, they had some pretty strong years, too. Yeah. They were they, pretty out there. <laughs> they, they weren't drinking lemonade. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And when I see you on TV and ESPN programs and the history of tennis and the first thing I think about truly is I think to myself, when did it all become aware to you? Like you're a kid in Douglaston. Do you have a sense that you have this gift or you see it reflected in the eyes of other people? Do other people walk up to you and say, John, come with me? Uh, that's what happened, basically, because we had no idea. My parents hadn't played either, so they didn't know. Um, so Neither of your parents were players? No. So when we joined this club, I was eight and a half, and I just sort of loved to play sports. So I happened to be so close to this club that I just started hitting against the backboard. And soon afterwards, the pro there said to my parents, you know, this guy, he's got something. You should send him to this Port Washington Tennis Academy, which took a little time. I'll jump forward a little bit. But basically, that was a sort of idea. People telling my parents who didn't know better that there was something they saw in me. And how did you feel about that at the time? Because to go to, into the intensity of individual sports, I mean, you've played team sports as well, correct? Correct. I played soccer, basketball in high school. I played football in grammar school. I played baseball. I played pretty much every sport. Right. Hockey when the ponds froze over. Right. I didn't like it that much uh, because uh, everyone's losing all the time. And Tennis. Tennis, yeah. Right. So I, I actually... What I do at my own tennis academy is sort of how I was able to deal with the difficulties of being out there on your own, sort of feeling naked when you're losing. I mean, it's great when you're winning, mm -hmm. 
it's pretty bad when you're, especially when you're a kid, it's, it's really hard to handle, I think. So the outlet of having sort of teammates or playing other sports. Um, to share with them. Uh, that, that, was, that was important for me. I think I would have quit playing had it not been that I was able to go to these other sports at different times, play a lot less tennis, sort of rejuvenate, get a, you start believing in yourself again. And I mean, you play a tournament in the 12 and unders, and there's 64 guys, 63 guys lose. You know, there's only one guy that wins the tournament. So no matter what level it is, even if you're sick, I was six, seven in the nation in the 12 and unders. I mean, that didn't amount to a whole lot to a lot of people, but that meant that pretty much every national tournament I played, I lost. At that time, initially, I wasn't even the top player in the East. The best line I ever told my father was when I was 12. It felt like he was putting, to me, too much pressure on me to sort of, he really was- Does he acknowledge that? uh, Probably acknowledges to a degree, (laughs) but not totally. (laughs) But, but what I did, which I thought was pretty, you know, looking back, it saved me, was I said, listen, Dad, uh, don't worry about what my ranking is now because their goal was always to get me a college scholarship and play Davis Cup, which is when you represent your country. Mm-hmm. That's our version of, like, the Olympics mm-hmm. at the time. Don't come to me until I'm 18. You know, that's the year that the Stanfords or the UCLA's or SC's, the top tennis schools are going to come and say, hey, we're going to offer you a scholarship. So just, like— Back off. You felt that pressure then? Yeah, I felt it then. And my brother, who's my middle brother, not Patrick, Mark, quit at 12, 13, because he couldn't, I can't handle this anymore, these tournaments. (laughs) And he's a good tennis player. He's a lawyer, but he he made the Stanford team one year. It's not like the guy's a slouch, but he just couldn't deal with it. And I found that to be, my parents weren't even as nearly as bad as I see a lot of parents now or even parents in my day. In addition, the kids are homeschooled, which to me is really unhealthy because you're already isolated on a tennis court. Mm -hmm. They further isolate them by having them homeschool, which I think is really unhealthy. None of them now play other sports, which I think is unhealthy. So you're heading these kids in a direction that so few succeed. And even if they do, then they almost they're not equipped to handle it. And do you advise against that at your tennis academy? I totally advise against it. You want them to play other sports? I sit with parents and I tell them until I'm blue in the face and they don't listen to me. They sit there like, what the hell are you talking? You don't even know what you're talking about. I'm like, how they? You're like Babe Ruth to them now. Exactly. From another time. I'm like a dinosaur. You're right. You're you play a different style of yes. wood rackets, you know, the way you play. Continental is, grip. No one does that stuff. Yeah. So generally speaking, they look at me like, yeah, that was then, but this is reality now. Like at 10, they've got to be all in and you got to send your kids to Boletaries or some other academy. And you got to want it more than anything. Well, I mean, I to think the exclusion of everything else. It's not that you don't, you know, it turned out that I wanted it a lot more than I realized, or I was able to do more than I thought I was capable of in terms of digging deeper and, and emotionally sort of accepting the challenges step by step. It took me a long time. You know, part of the reason I acted the way I did, let's be honest, is like that fear of failure. And I would it was a response have, to pressure. I would rather have people watching me scream than watching me cry. I don't know if you were, but me growing up, it was guys don't cry type of thing. And if you show that, that's a sign of weakness. So it was sort of to protect myself. So they'd be like, well, this guy's crazy. 
Well, my favorite was your brother was quoted in, in the on the article in the in the Times a few years ago. There was a there was a long story on you. It says, according to Patrick McEnroe, who spent childhood evenings in the garage learning to ignore the paddles John smashed against the wall when Patrick beat him at ping pong. Quote: Part of him enjoys chaos. He likes things to be a little unsettled, wreaking havoc. What unsettles others, he can handle. And I and, uh, no, but what, what I what I love about that, and I'm not saying that you know, I always have these encounters with paparazzi and photographers. I think all oh, these guys have to be straightened out at some point. You know what I mean? It's like that's it's, the chaos. It's I a tall order. It's like ch- making tennis more popular again. I mean, it's gonna. I mean, I'm, I see tennis going in this direction. That's sort of sad. Which, which is which is that it's becoming this cult thing almost. It's becoming a semi afterthought in, in in America. You know the top players. We don't have anyone in the top 10. We haven't had a Grand Slam champion in 11 years. Who's we, have, we? We, the Americans. With Serena. Well, I, I meant the, the men. men. I'm right, sorry. Okay. I mean, Serena. Thank God for Serena right. and Venus. I right. mean, it'd be... And, and the playing field's much more level for girls. I mean, that's the part that's that's so different with the girls. That's why you see much better athletes going into the game of tennis on the women's side, not the men's, because how many places of work or sports is it the equal prize money for the men and women. I mean, look at basketball, the WNBA, they make what, 150th of what the men make? Golf is, I mean, huge difference. There's no American football, hockey, there's not even a, uh, barely anything, softball, baseball. I mean, it's, but if you walk onto a tennis court, as I mean, I have four girls and two boys. If you had told me in the 80s that I would have said equal prize money is a good thing, I would have said you're out of your mind because we looked at it, we're like, you kidding me? Look at what we're watching. Number one, we're playing a lot longer. Not that that necessarily means it's better, but we're out there playing best of five, and they're playing best of three. And then the guys felt their product was was far superior. But for me as a father, you know, that changed things a lot for me because it's, I sort of looked at it like, look, we're sort of we're ahead of our time in a way because even in the business world, the, the women aren't getting a fair shake. And we're representing something to young girls. We're giving sort of they can look and say, wow, we can be sort there's of parody. There's parody. And that's that more than makes up for whatever if we if guys think, you know, our our product's better or we play longer. And so I've actually taken pride in the idea that I've gotten behind that over the course of the last 10, 15 years, especially 20 years maybe, because it's been around for a long time. But it took a while for the guys to understand any side of this. Now, how would you characterize where American men are at in tennis now and how do we get there? Why is it that way? Well, I characterize it as a a number of problems. You know, the biggest problem is that we need the best athletes, if possible, like they do in other countries. You know, Rafael Nadal is one of the best athletes in Spain. I'm not going to take anything away from the players, but there are our A-plus athletes. Our A-plus athletes are playing football or basketball. The cost of it is so prohibitive that it cuts out 95% of the population. So it's still considered an elite game. Well, I... Yeah, I think it is. It is still considered. Because if you, you've been in New York, living in New York, we've lost a number of tennis clubs because they've torn them down and they put up a parking garage or a commercial. Apartment building. Exactly. You know, an office building. I mean, it's like, who the hell do do we need more of that? And, 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 you know, kids, when they grow up, they need to see something. They sort of, wow, that's cool. They're sexy in a certain way. We've done a horrible marketing job, in my opinion, of making a sport where people would be interested in it. And then the totem pole of tennis. You know, I mean, if you look at the most popular sports, you look at football, you look at basketball. Soccer's done a better job than we have getting. But, I mean, look at a soccer field. You could put 40 kids on this space where you could put eight kids, uh, two tennis courts. 
it's much more cost effective. So describe your facility, the, the tennis academy. Well, my academy. facility's at Randall's Island. Right, what was it before you uh, took over? Before that, it was— A tennis uh, club? Well, there was a smaller club. They, they renovated. They spent $19 million, the people I work for. I mean, when I played at Randall's Island in the 70s, I mean, you'd be more worried about the glass on the ground than you would be a defender <laughs> tackling. I mean, it was just crazy. Syringes on, uh, on the field. <laughs> Bloomberg started the Randall's Island Sports Foundation and put a lot of money into it. And now it, their facilities are being used a lot more, and it's really been upgraded in, in a beautiful way. So, uh, How many courts? 20 are courts, 10 clay, 10 hard. To me, it's the best facility in New York. We're trying to get 10 more. I want it to be the best facility in the country, if not the world. Do they have a scholarship program there to we try do, to cultivate but, you some? Know, we do, we, we have probably up to 40 kids. Right now, they're on partial or full scholarship. But, I mean, I have to go out and drum up more support because it's very costly to hire coaches. And sure. if you have to have coaches go to t- events and the training, I mean, you, you put them in group sessions, which is, okay, that's better. It's not as costly. But then you, they need some private lessons, too, to sort of hone their game. Um, Does the USTA have any kind of funding that they uh, – grants you can apply for? Do, do they get involved in cultivating future They try stars? to sort of uh, be- monopolize everything. Uh, there was a lot of other people who said, look, you should allow a facility like ours. I have a lot of tremendous pros there, and I think we could do a great job cultivating talent in New York better than anywhere else. But they're trying to sort of get everyone and not allow clubs like us to sort of give us grants. And now I think they're realizing their error in their ways, and they're starting to sort of at least publicly say, yeah, we, we're interested in the possibility of doing that. But we've gotten virtually nothing from them at all. So I'm trying, you know, Nike's, uh, Phil Knight's, I've been with Nike longer than any other athlete, so he has been nice enough to give the most money so far. And I'm looking to try to get either A, a corporation, or B, some friend of mine or some wealthy donors to get involved in hopefully saving the sport of tennis, I guess, in in our country. I mean, it's healthy in Europe, and these are fantastic players, probably the best time we've ever had in tennis in terms of the quality of the game. But it's sort of our ratings are, and the popularity of it are, to me, going in the wrong direction. So we have to do a lot of things to try to change the rules. If you really want to make the game more popular to me, no umpires on the court, no linesmen. You don't need linesmen. They've already proven they can't see anything over the course of the last 50 years. So let's <laughs> move on from that and get where there would be like an edge with the players. Maybe the players would think they were cheating each other. I mean, they so would, literally have a computer rule. There's a lot of different ways you can do it, but the point is trying different things. You know, I'm a proponent of having no warm-up. To me, why the hell do we need to warm up? Are you a boxing fan? Yeah. Do they go out on the, you know, the ring and then they start pitter-pattering each other for five minutes before they try to knock each other onto, you know, into another state? That might be thrilling, actually. I think they should add that. Well, I'm I mean, kidding. You know, yeah, but, but to me, to me it, the idea of sort of guys coming out like boxing, and on this side is Roger Federer, and you go through the thing, and they're sort of jumping around, and this side is Rafael Nadal. And then first ball Making means about. something. Yeah. I mean, I just find it to be so absurd. These guys go out and they train for 45 minutes before. If they have a 7 o'clock match, they're out there. They're on another court. Well, they're out there at whatever, 2. And then they come back out at 5.30 to 6. And they stretch and they tape and they run and they jump rope and they do all these things. And they walk out in the court and then they do another 5 minutes. You know, we could go on and on. You could play let's on a serve, which would make things more exciting. Who's that that famous boxing ref that guy used to love? Uh, uh, Let's get it on! Let's get it on! Mills Lane. Mills Mills Lane, Lane. yeah. (laughs) I want to be the Mills Lane of tennis. I want to be like, now, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, let's get it on! 
Let's I bring mean, Mills Lane to the tennis. I'm telling you, it would help. Next time on Here's the Thing, I talk with legendary actress Julie Andrews. Do you have a favorite musical number from Sound of Music? That's hard. I do have a song that's my favorite, but it wasn't mine. You'll have to download my next episode to find out what her favorite song is. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash Bits. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In 1977, 18-year-old John McEnroe qualified for Wimbledon. He found himself face-to-face with Jimmy Connors, and the most famous rivalry in tennis took off. Well, I never met him, and he wouldn't, you know, look at me or acknowledge my existence. And I mean, I was... what did that make you think? It made me think like uh, this guy's a total asshole, right? Which I was pretty much which was, was confirmed for you over and over again, many times. But did you think I need to be more like them, detached, cold, emotionless? Uh, to some degree, I didn't like that he wouldn't even say, "Look, I'm Jimmy Connors." I mean, I was already so intimidated as it was. It was Connors and Borg were one, two in the world. I was, I remember at the hotel, they had the odds. It was like. Borg, like three to one, Connors, five to one, Garolitis, who was my late great buddy, Vetus Garolitis, 20 to one, John McEnroe, 250 to one. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking? I can't even believe I'm on the board with these guys. Right. This is unbelievable. Did you have to put that up there, 250 to uh, one? I, mean, I, would on. it, I would have put it like a million to one. Million. You know, So to me, the fact that it was even there was like, but then the way he sort of treated me like I was just, it didn't belong. I said, okay, this this is like a... 
I got to learn from this. But, but was it was that unusual for him? Was that actually pro forma for a lot of those guys no, at the top no, level? No, no, not not. Or some really. of them were more gentlemen. Yeah, some of them were more gentlemen. Ash. But, 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 but Arthur would be one. Bjorn Borg Vetus was much friendlier. There was only one locker room. I understand where he's coming from. Right. I mean, I w- that's what he needed to I'd do. I'd almost prefer there be separate locker rooms. If you don't, you, you see that more often now. Everyone's got their entourage, and they just want to focus on getting ready. It's awkward sometimes if you're in the same room. It's like if the Jets play the Giants in football, and they're all in the same locker room. It could be yeah. weird. Yeah. And I don't know why it's like that in tennis. It's I think like Spartacus. Other- yeah. Right. Exactly. So then you play Ash seventy nine. Uh, seventy nine. Well, so so so. After losing to Connors, I realized, okay, I could do this. But I actually went to Stanford then. I did not turn pro. For one year. I I played as an amateur all through the summer. I entered Stanford at 21 in the world. I wanted to go there, experience, as, as, which I think was a great decision, just experience college, be a kid. As soon as I got there, I thought I was going to be hot stuff. No one gave a rat's ass about me, paid any attention. Everyone's doing their own thing. So that made me hungrier because I was like, no women, girls seem to be interested in me, even though I was 21 more, so I better be higher. (laughs) Well, out of there, and I got to get better because maybe if I was five in the world, they might look at that a little better or one. So I leave, I turn pro, I win the NCAAs in May of 78, turn pro, and I sort of go through some growing pains in the pros for the better part of six months. I lost first round the next year at Wimbledon. Even though I liked it, the traveling, I just was having trouble getting my game together. But finally, I started to get it together towards the end of 78. And I made, finished the year at four in the world where I then went to, which was like a dream, play at Madison Square Garden. And I played Arthur in the final, who uh, sort of tried to trick me the same way he tricked Connors in 75 with sort of these off-speed pitches, off-speed shots. And he almost beat me. I beat him easily in the round robin portion. Then he had two match points on me and he said he got screwed on a call. So that's like the one time I actually got a good call that Save me. If God rest his soul, he was here. He'd tell you right now that he was screwed. Of course, he took it a lot better than I did. (laughs) With the one time a ref was your friend. And then, yeah, exactly. Two months after Arthur's match, I was playing Borg in this match. And I was going crazy. It was five all in the third set. And Bjorn pointed his finger. He said, come here. And I thought, oh, my God, this guy's going to tell me I'm the biggest asshole that ever lived because I was just losing it. And he put his arm around me when we got to net. He goes, look, it's okay. This is good, okay? <laughs> and he sort of just, I had this, like, goosebumps, and I was like, wow, this, I can't. And then I, for a second, I thought, he's trying to play head games with me. Like, I thought he was, you know. <laughs> he doesn't but, mean it. He doesn't mean it. What does he mean? And so I got, brilliant. I, I was, I started analyzing, but then I thought, God, this guy sort of accepted me. Like I'm sort of part of this elite group. And it's like, look, let's, let's roll with this. This is going to be amazing. And that was one of the greatest moments in my life. Bjorn Borg accepting you. Borg's right. like the guy. I'm here for another reason. Connors and I are going to be battling. That's a given. Right. And there's, Garolitis was like Joe Namath in the tennis world. He was like Broadway Vitas. He yeah. was like the greatest. I mean, I'd just follow him around so I could get in Studio 54. Right. I'd go to Studio 54 just to, and I was five in the world then, right? This is right around when I beat Arthur. And the, Mark, I forgot his last name, the doorman at 54. <laughs> get out of here, you little <laughs> pipsqueak. <laughs> And then when Vetus would come, they'd be like, roll out the red carpet. Yes. He'd come with these, you know, the Cheryl Teagues yeah. and these beautiful and women. For, and I'm like, God. So I just called Vetus. I got to get a fur coat. When you, when, yo, I got one of those. But I go, when are you uh, going to Studio 54? <laughs> <laughs> then I'm your driver. And people were like, hey, 
that's John McEnroe. You know, I'd be like the 300 people that couldn't get in. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't. See, we're all in the same boat. Now, when you, uh, w- when you have a rivalry with someone like Connors, what was the match you had with him that was the most satisfying? For you? Uh, probably when I beat him at Wimbledon, I destroyed him at Wimbledon. But, I mean, in a way, you want to win the close ones, uh, the, the five setters. But when I beat him at Wimbledon uh, in, in 84, in like 80, 90 minutes, that was the, probably the most satisfying because we weren't speaking to each other at all. He, he, he chose at certain times not to speak to me. I never chose not to speak to him. He would make the constant decision to sort of make it pr- even more problematic than it was. And we were actually on the Davis Cup team together. We were teammates, and he he would not speak to me but during the whole week. <laughs> <laughs> on and, a team with you. And I had played seven straight uh, straight years of Davis Cup, and Arthur Ashe was the captain at this stage. He started in 81. In 84, Connors wanted a notch in his belt, like he'd have a Davis Cup championship t- team. He could see I'm part of the—because he, right. he would always be like, screw you to Davis Cup. He's sure. like a total individual. He didn't want to be part of a team. So Connors was at—we were playing Argentina and Atlanta, and Arthur calls me up, and he says, listen, John— Jimmy doesn't want you to come to the team dinner. And it's like the team dinner went and said, would you mind um, not coming? So I go, Arthur, I'm the guy that's played every goddamn match the last seven years. And now you're telling me this guy who's like so pathetically doing this for political purposes, so he looks good. You're going to tell me not to go? Yeah. Are you kidding? So he said, uh, then he thought about it, realized that that was was wrong and that, you know, Jimmy didn't come. Jimmy stayed in another hotel. <laughs> we didn't speak to the entire year till we got to the finals in December of 84, and we had lost our first two matches, still not speaking. Peter Fleming, my old doubles partner, I were playing the doubles, a close match against Edberg and Yarrett, a great team. We're losing. It's the fourth set. Two sets to one down, four set tiebreaker. I look up, and all of a sudden, Connors is, cl- come on, guys. First time I'd seen this the entire year because now you realize spirit. We're, we're, yeah, we we're, we lose this tiebreaker. We're, we've lost the Davis Cup to to Sweden, and I remember the, which is sad. I feel bad about this because I'm representing my country, but I'm sitting there and I'm just going, "This guy's doing this now. That is so lame." I'm, I'll show him. You know, showing him was like losing. Well, we could have lost anyway, and Peter Fleming ended up double faulting a match point. We lost. And then it was, and then the next day he's like, "Hey man, let's practice or whatever." He's like totally changed back to like, "Let's hang out." Did so you ever? You talk about a mess with him? Yeah, we we, we at, at times, and we can talk now. But he's like the master manipulator. Now, when you come up in the game and you're 17 years old, I mean, there's people I'm assuming you worship and admire. Mm-hmm. So when you get up there and you knock off Ash, was it bittersweet? No, I mean, it was bittersweet when I beat Vetus Garolitis when I won the U.S. Open for the first time. That was bittersweet, especially since he never won it. I didn't know at the time that I'd win four and he'd win none. And I was four years younger, and we're both from Queens, which I don't think is ever going to happen. Two kids from Queens playing the finals of the U.S. Open. I hope it does. I hope my tennis academy produces a couple kids. (laughs) But the likelihood isn't very high. And they were booing us because they wanted Bohr Connors because those are the bigger names. Who coached you? I had this guy by the name of uh, Tony Palafox. Who Did he played, help you? 
Oh yeah, he, t- he taught me how to play. How, I didn't, impo- I didn't how ha- important is coaching? Well, coaching is can be overrated, and and at times it's critical. But you know, I didn't have a coach who traveled with me. I didn't like that. Who's a player that coaching made a difference? You thought a good coach helped that player? Uh, there's a lot of guys like right. that. You know, Nadal's uncle is incredible. I mean, I know who that. I mean, I don't know who Tony Nadal is, but whatever he's done is is amazing. Paying off. Uh, Bjorn Borg had this guy Leonard Berglund, who was a father figure. Played. You know, not a known, well-known player, Swedish player, but he also was like his masseuse, and he was also his psychologist, and he was also took care of him as like a bodyguard almost, and he he did everything for him. He was incredible for him, and Segura was with Connors. He used to criticize me. The guy's a bum. You know, he's nobody. He's nothing. You know, Segura would say, and I'd be like, it made me want to beat him even more. But, I mean, Segura for a period of time did great things. For him. Uh, when I lost to Lendl, um I believe at that time he was being coached by, he had started being coached by Tony Roach, who did some great work with some people. And you look at uh, Cahill's done some good work with Agassi and Hewitt. Those are mainly. Who's the, the top pro now that has the woman coach? Uh, that is Murray. He's right. being coached by Maresma, which, right. you know, is obviously like a left field move. The very few, if any people have, I mean, a few people have had their mothers involved. Safin's mother was around, and there's some. Sometimes that's happened. I know there's been a few occasions. I don't recall off the top of my head who it was, but for the most part, you rarely, if ever, see a woman coaching a man. Lendl did a great job. I hate to say it, you know, because we went at it also, but he did a tremendous job with Murray. Does Lendl play in the seniors now? Yeah, he plays a little bit, but I mean, I never thought that I would see the day where I'd be in better shape than he was. Wow, this is amazing. What do you do now to stay in shape? Well, I go to the gym three, three, four days a week. And do what? I do a combination of cardio. Str- I mean, you have to do recovery, stretching, core work. I do Pilates once a week. Some weights, you wouldn't know it because, I mean, I lift and then I come out and it looks the same as you look before. Great. But I feel like I'm fit. And then I hit the courts. Like after we do this, I'll hit the tennis courts. You and, do? Yeah. I play probably three days a week. And you never sit there and look at it and go, I can't just, I just don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, sometimes I do that because the body just uh, at times is depressing. You know, you, there's a lot of chronic pain and, you know, I've had hip, chronic hip problems for 30 years. When what, do I was, you do, what do you do for it? Uh, a lot of things. You know, I do Pilates. I go to physical therapy. I'll do a massage. I'll t- do certain stretches. I'll do weights. But I mean, this is, tennis beats you up. You're stopping and starting on cement. Oh, yeah, incredible. I mean, go try doing that. Like, when it's done at the championship level, it's kind of stunning when you watch people do those 180s and those, those spins like I that. I think it's, it's— It it's, looks it's, agonizing. It, and, and also think about, like, the U.S. Open this year. You see the, the heat was—I mean, it's, sometimes that's a serious problem. And that's, to me, why Djokovic lost. It wasn't anything to do with anything else but other than that freaked him out. And the other guy had, did an amazing job of sort of dealing with it. Right. But he had no business, you know, to me, he wouldn't have, there's no way that Djokovic would have lost had it no not way. been 120 on the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, that happens sometimes. Now, when, when you play tennis at the level you play tennis, do people, do they look at film? Do they study the other guy? Do you sit there and go, oh, I, I have a certain technique to play this guy? I try to sort of, you know, get as close as possible to reaching my, my peak as far as like what I could do and sort of adding to that uh, ideally. But what I thought when I was playing the way I could play, I would force them to sort of get out of their comfort zone, not me alter my game. I thought that my game was good enough to deal with whatever they had to offer. I was taught, which is totally unlike now, shorter backswings, take the ball early, 
and be aggressive and you know move forward and go to the net because I have a much better chance of winning the point at net than I do from the baseline. On the old grass courts, there's a lot of bad bounces. So if you let the ball bounce, the ball would often not be where you thought it was going right. to be. I would have loved to play like, not. I certainly wouldn't have loved to play Nadal on clay. That would have been everyone's worst nightmare. But on grass, the old grass, I mean, he would have been mishitting like 40% of the shots. If I saw a guy swinging like they swing now, I would have thought, all right, I got this. This this guy can't do this. So wood rackets were still in vogue back when you started? Uh, When I started. And 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 very quickly they were gone. Metal, uh, steel Probably before I I lasted to about 82, 83 with with wood. Where do you think it can go from here, though, equipment-wise? I don't know, but I think they should try to figure something out where they should make it more of a level playing field for players attacking the net. Because the way it is now, it's these strings are sort of benefit swinging harder with less feel for the ball, but you get more action, like spin, if you swing harder. So the rackets have gotten a lot lighter, and they're just taking tremendous swings at the ball, but they're, they're stiffer strings, so you don't feel the ball at net the way they used to. So they're more reticent, the players, of coming to net because the ball's being hit harder. So I'm not sure where they can go from here in 10 years. They could change. They could do a lot of things. I mean, they, you could change the dimension of the court or slightly move in the service line. You could change how big a racket could be because my wood racket may have been 78 square inches. Serena's is like 105. <laughs> you know, that's a huge difference. And her racket is, I would say, at least 60 grams lighter than mine. Right. Now, you have six kids. Six kids. You have a stepdaughter. One stepdaughter. Your, your wife uh, from her... F- uh, Richard Hell, the uh, guy from... Um, a television, the band, the, one of the first punk bands, is Ruby's father. Right. And you have three kids from your first marriage. I have three marriage, kids with Tatum. And you and Patty have two. Correct. Right. Are any of them worth a damn on the tennis court? Uh, <laughs> don't make me answer that. <laughs> Four of them have now played high school tennis. Right. Ruby, my stepdaughter, was the only one who didn't, and, and Emily, who's a third of the three I had with Tatum, didn't ever really try to do it. Who's the one you think likes it the most? Uh, maybe. And just enjoys playing. I don't think any of them deep down seem to really enjoy it. I want to give one of them, any of your kids who are listening, I want to give them a piece of advice. Because to me, this is how I operate. And that is life is just a series <laughs> of moments. And if I had six kids and there was one of them who was smart enough to sit there and there's just dead silence in the room. And one even daughter or son says, uh, I'll go hit with you, Dad, because I know it means the world to you. Then you cut ahead like 25 years, and we read the last will and testament of John Macro. I bequeath my entire fortune to my daughter, Emily, who yeah. always hit the ball with me when yeah, I want to hit the ball. exactly. I, they don't get it. Well, some of them did try to do that. Right. I never felt like they could listen to me, but I guess it was the way I approached it. You know, I'd be like, watch the ball! <laughs> and then Patty would be say, just take it easy, will you? i go, I am taking it easy. Right. Okay, that's the problem. <laughs> this is taking it easy. <laughs> Passionate. See, that's the word I like. Passion is I view you better as passionate. than crazed. You and I both have yes. passion. What's been the biggest challenge of fatherhood for you? I, the biggest challenge of fatherhood is just how to make these kids happy. I love being a father. Um, I, I don't know how good I am with it, but I did love it. I loved a, a lot of kids around. I lo- it, But you realize that in retrospect now, when kids are in their 20s, four of my six kids are in their 20s, that it's difficult to sort of get that individual time with each one. You know, I'd sort of like to do things, let's all go to the Nick game, or let's all go do this. And then it was sort of, I guess in retrospect, I would have liked to pick my spots a little better with each individual one of them. But I mean, it's, it's by far the hardest thing 
that I've ever done. And you raised them in New York? Yeah. Why do you still live in New York? I, I think New York's the greatest city in the world. You I mean, mean, you have a home in California. Yeah. You could afford to live in any lifestyle you want to live, but you stay here. Well, it keeps me somewhat grounded, if that makes any sense at all, because to most people, that would seem like counterintuitive. But to me, just the mere fact that you see all different types of people. I mean, I suppose I just read in the Times today that Manhattan's got the greatest, the wealth difference is higher here than any place in the country. So that sort of semi-bummed me out because it is getting more like that 1%. But mm-hmm. I also felt like, uh, to me, just going in the subway and seeing wealthy people, not wealthy people, white people, black people, all different kinds of people, that's the best thing for a child. Like in Malibu, or where I have a home, it's a great place to, to hang out, but it just seems like you're sort of, it's like living behind a gated community. It's a little rarefied there, yeah. I mean, in a way. I mean, uh, I, and I, I just think it, the, the best chance of sort of being well-rounded, again, that may sound crazy to a lot of people that don't live here, would be for me to live here. I always dreamed of, you know, as a Queens boy, wanting to move to Manhattan. And well, live. I, I agree there's, with you. There's, I, there's times as I've gotten older where I feel a little bit like, um, how much longer do I need this or take this? Because sometimes it's like take a step back and you don't have to go out and do everything. And I don't do everything, but you can pick your spots and you have uh, options that you don't have in most places. Well, I agree with you that it's democratizing. I mean, as my uncle used to say, millionaires and whores sitting on the same taxi cab seat all day long. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like if you're famous, it's become a little bit tedious because it's a, it's a different kind of a world. Well, I feel like I've uh, sort of, first of all, I'm not arguably, uh, I'm not as famous as I was. And I'm sort of boring because I've been with the same person for 20 years. And I try to sort of fly under the radar if, uh, in, a, in a way, I'm proud of what what I've accomplished, and I like to be doing the commentary, and I like to have a laugh and you know, go on your show once in a while or your old show. And most people are extremely positive. You know, 99% of the people are like, hey, Ad- Mac, what's admire, up? Yeah, admire you. That's an incredible thing. Before it'd be, people would say to me, John, I got to tell you something. You're a better commentator than you're a tennis player. I go, what, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> I get pissed. The first five to ten years. Who would possibly say that? A lot of people, okay? And I've actually sort of accepted that. I said, wait a second. If I'm a better commentator than I am a tennis player, I must be a pretty good, damn good commentator because I was pretty good at tennis. It's taken me about ten years to finally go, wow, that's – embrace it. Yeah. I try to view myself at the end of each year. Am I a better person than than I was last year? Like when I was 25, when I had the sort of the world by the tail, and I was thought, my, I'm the best player that ever lived. I looked at that, <laughs> and I said, no one could beat me. And then I had a, a Kevin at, tw- uh, at 27. Because I felt like this wasn't giving me everything I wanted. I was like, why is it that I'm like the greatest player that ever lived in a way, or what people are saying this, or certainly one of them, and it just doesn't feel that satisfying. You know, I, I need something else. I want to be more well-rounded. So while... Arguably, I had a tough time juggling marriage. You know, I had three kids in five years with Tatum. Those are the last five years of my career. And how to do that properly, I found that extremely difficult. I did feel like it was forcing me to sort of own up as a, as a person. You know, you got to step up and, you know, quit being so damn spoiled or whatever the hell you were, thought you were. And, you, you know, it sort of forced, it forced me down to earth. And it ended up making me a better person in the long run, even though my results were never the same. You know, it, and it's not just because of the—there's a lot of other things, you know, that went into it, too. But it sort of felt like it was worth it in a way because where I am now as a person is in part because I feel like I've dealt reasonably well 
with certain curveballs that were thrown my way. You play doubles now with your brother. Yeah, your occasionally, not all the time. Not all the time. Yeah. And, and you enjoy that? I enjoy it now. Right. We're a seven and a half year gap, so it was sort of, when we did do it, we- You're the oldest. I'm the oldest. Mark's we're, in the middle. Mark's three years younger than me, and then four and a half younger than Patrick. But it was, we play a similar style. So you sort of need like the big guy that hits serves big and intimidating net, and then we're like the field guys that put the ball at the feet, return, you know, get things done, have good anticipation, but we, neither one of us are particularly overwhelming serve. So we, it felt like we were sort of the same guys. So we were better off playing probably against other people. But at this point, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, right, right. you know, we just want to go out there and have a little fun. And we can do enough where we can win anyway. Right. You know, you watch these shows. I mean, I'm a sports nut. I watch 30 for 30. And you see these, like, soaring yeah. moments people have. You right. Know? And I'm wondering, is there, I'm not saying it's the greatest moment, but is there some moment, even you, when you turn on the TV and you're on the TV and they show some highlight of yours, is there some moment that even you sit there and go, yeah, man, that was really. Unfortunately, was yeah, I'd like to tell you yes, because, but too many of them are me yelling in, like, an umpire. Right. You know, it's like, I saw victory. you on YouTube. No, I know what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I don't well, have. Let's pick one of those. My proudest moment of four days would be the 1980 U.S. Open. I played my three greatest rivals in four days. I played Lendl in the quarters a Thursday night. I beat him like 7-5 in the fourth. I had to come back in the next morning at 11 and play the finals of the doubles, which Peter Fleming and I lost, I believe, to Smith and Lutz in five sets. And then I had to come back Saturday to play Connors. And I was two sets to one down and a break in the fourth set uh, and ended up beating him 7-6 in the fifth. And then the next day, the finals on Sunday, because we had to play these back-to-back, which is crazy, Saturday, Sunday, I played Bjorn Borg, who I'd lost the 80, famous 1980 Wimbledon final to, which is probably, like, my proudest moment. That's the one where, like, the tiebreaker, and I, that's the one that people talk to me about 100 times. But for me, coming back and then beating him 6-4 in the fifth to win the U.S. Open, that was my proudest few days as a tennis player. Uh I just want to say that in that way that sports highlights are packaged so beautifully now, you know, ESPN and so forth. I think what's great about your career is even years later, someone like me who has admired you forever, you had the greatest, highest well, level of hand-eye you. coordination yeah. of any athlete in pro sports. And you to watch you with the net, just lacerating these people was really thrilling. And what's great is you watch it even now, and it's still thrilling. Tell me with, more. No, um, no, 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 you, no you, thank you. you I appreciate you, that. You, you, Which kills me now because I've recently, in the last like eight years, I have used reading glasses. And the very thing, like people say, you could play doubles now. And I go, yeah, I could play doubles now against people I can't name other than the Bryan brothers. But I can't see two feet away from <laughs> Right, right, right. You know, so the thing that I did best is sort of like I, I sort of go instead of like right there, I sort of go, you know, look back like you do when you can't see a newspaper headline anymore. So it's sort of sad, but um, I, pre- but I, I think, appreciate but I try I think, to bring that something different to the game. But I think the thing you did best is you entertain people. You entertain people. I think you, you I put think people they got in the their seats. Yeah, they, they, you, you want to know something? You definitely gave them the <laughs> when they came to see you. Thanks for Thank doing you, this, man. man. John McEnroe admits he hasn't quite figured out how to enjoy losing. As you get older, he says, the pain of losing is greater, and the joy of winning is diminished. Even if that's true, John, you've always made both so much fun to watch. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. QAnon is now the most prolific online conspiracy theory of the 21st century. None of their predictions came true, Q has vanished, and the storm never came. But QAnon is very much still alive. Join me, Jake Hanrahan, for season two of Q Clearance. We'll be documenting how QAnon has evolved. Listen to Q Clearance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.